Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. This week, we're going to get some economic data, particularly some inflation data. We have CPI tomorrow, PPI Wednesday. And we also have a Federal Reserve, which is adamant uh, in fighting inflation. So a lot of moving parts here that are going to play into uh, what we may hear from the Federal Reserve next week. And when we talk Federal Reserve and interest rates and policy, we need to go to Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank uh, of Dallas. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, a lot of inflation data we're going to get today. What do you think the Federal Reserve is really going to be focusing on? Well, I, I think that they're going to go ahead and fade what they see in in the headline CPI. I think that that has been so well broadcast um, across so many different channels that they're going to be they're going to really have their eye more on the stickiness of the core okay. and whether that is as it as it as it's expected ticks up to six point one percent. My buddy Ivy Zellman, who's been yeah. a longtime veteran of the housing industry, she sees housing shelter both OER and rent. She sees that peaking at 7% in the fall, year over year. Now, yeah. that, that, that is, that's a good 150 basis points above what it was. Yeah, Ivy's the best. Uh, I used to work with Ivy back in the day on the housing biz. Um, so if you're the Federal Reserve, I mean, all right, 75 basis points as we get to next week. But I guess that's, that, that's baked in. Is it more just kind of the body language we get about whether we pause and see if this stuff actually works or whether we just keep moving higher? Well, I think what we're going to be focused on are the things that are less in the Fed's control. And that would be, what are food prices going to do? I was seeing a, a report on, on the terminal last night that really, really hot blazing temperatures out west, that's affecting how much we're paying for produce. Um, I, I think a lot of it's going to depend on, on how sticky rents are. Rents have begun to peak out. But even in a shorter lag world, which I argue, and I think that that's one of the things that people should be paying close attention to, the effect of lag has been compressed. Monetary policy is working faster. But that being said, if Fannie Mae figures it, figures it takes five quarters to see shelter inflation move its way through the CPI, we've still got high housing inflation for several more quarters. So I've got a listener writing in, Danielle, and asks, is if we get a 5% print, is that high enough to get the Fed to continue hiking into a weakening environment? Or, or what, what CPI print matters in terms of the actual numbers? Well, look, un- until the job is done, I mean, how much more explicit can Jay Powell be? I, 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 don't, think, I don't think four is going to be acceptable. So until, I, I we're, like- until we're back headed back down towards 2%, which I guess we all interpret as three is headed towards two, right? I, yeah, well, I mean, that, that's kind of what the European Central Bank alluded to with communications last, uh, last week. 
is that three might be the new two. And but but in order for us to get there, most of the work that's been done shows that you have to have an appreciably bigger bump up in your unemployment rate. And I think that that's where the focus is. And it's it's intriguing that um, <clears throat> that only Lael Brainerd, so far vice chair, uh, has said you know there are risks if we begin to slow the economy too much. You had to pay pretty close attention to what her comments were last week. But that's what she said. Otherwise, everybody's just a bunch of former doves who are now bulls in china shops (laughs) so danielle i mean aside from the fact that we've already had two quarters of negative gdp what is your uh recession outlook and maybe what are some of the parameters that kind of kick you into recession or maybe keep us out of it or maybe make it deep versus not deep how do you think about that Right now, I think about the recession in terms of it being long. And what people don't appreciate is that the National Bureau of Research, Economic, uh, Economic Research, they, they time recessions based on the level of GDP. S&P Global came out on Friday. They reduced their third quarter GDP estimate to 0.6%. I'm getting wonky here, but that means that it's not sufficient to offset the negative 0.8% they're anticipating we see for the final print for the second quarter. What that means is on a level, the NBER could come out and surprise investors who are like, woohoo, it's a happy, you know, we're seeing positive growth. The NBER could come out and say, you know what, we're still in recession and surprise people because it's gauged off of the level. That's what the arbiters, that's how, that's how they do it. I want to finally ask you about political pressure. How much do you think, Danielle, the Fed is going to feel um, if we start to get unemployment at four and a half, five, five and a half percent, or I should say when we start to get unemployment around five percent. And and how will that affect this independent body? Well, I, I think that the, the winds will shift violently um, from we're concerned about inflation to, oh, my gosh, our constituents are losing their jobs. So it won't take the Beltway crowd very long to go <laughs> from point A to point B. We saw news out of Goldman that they're uh, that they're pursuing layoffs just this morning. That being said, this Jay Powell sounds like a different person. And until something breaks in credit, and I don't mean just bankruptcies rising or defaults increasing, but until something fundamental breaks that threatens systemic risk, I see this Jay Powell as pushing forward. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us once again. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the CEO and chief strategist at Quill Intelligence, and she's a former advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, of Dallas, and she brings up that Goldman Sachs news. Yeah. Goldman Sachs prepares for layoffs as soon as next week. That's according to the New York. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Times. Let's check in with our next guest, David Dietz. He's a managing principal and senior portfolio strategist at Peacock uh, Private Wealth Management based in Summit, New Jersey. David, thanks so much for joining us here. We're going to get a bunch of inflation data uh, this week with CPI and PPI, and we know our Federal Reserve is paying attention to that. How are you going to parse some of this data we're going to get this week? Yeah, 
so absolutely. I think that's the number one issue is where is inflation uh, in America today? And of course, uh, last month we saw that headline inflation was flat. Uh, it still gave us an 8.1% year over year, which is far too uh, high, uh, worse than like 40 years, and the Federal Reserve is, is reacting. But remember, investors are always looking forward, and what we're thinking we're going to get come Tuesday is actual actually a dip, about 10 basis points in terms of headline inflation, as we're going to see softer gasoline prices at the pump, some softening in rent with the strong dollar um, export prices are coming down too. And so that will help the narrative that perhaps we're past peak inflation and things are going to start easing. So what does that mean for stocks? Does that mean the S&P um, continues this rally that we've seen the past few sessions? Yeah, it's a great question. Very hard to make a short-term call. I think the the skeptic would say, hey, you know, we've been buying, you know, we're up 4.1% since last Tuesday. We've been buying on anticipation that this is going to be a better print. And there could be what we say, you know, buy on the rumor and then sell on the news and people take some profits if it just comes in as, as I mentioned. Uh, having said that, of course, it could be a little bit better, softer inflation, or that could give investors greater confidence to continue to push prices higher. That wouldn't be surprising because, you know, we're down 18% on the mm. S&P 500 since the high point in January. Uh, we still should see positive corporate earnings for Q3 up nearly 4%. Uh, we've got strong employment. The consumer continues to spend and very resilient. Um, so there's reasons to be uh, upbeat. David, Kriti Gupta brought up something at the top of the program, which I thought was really interesting. She said that the gains that Ukraine is making in the the war against Russia are um, allowing the dollar to kind of let some of the pressure out and, and the Bloomberg dollar index is down against, um, you know, the euro is gaining, the pound is gaining. You think that a, a positive turnaround for Ukraine in this war, a positive outlook would be good for stocks as well? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, you know, the the, <clears throat> the concern, of course, is with any kind of, you just don't know where that geopolitical situation is going. Um, and the recent good news, well, we already see now uh, European natural gas prices are um, <clears throat> now at a one-month low. Um, the euro is starting to gain a little bit of momentum. The dollar's down 3% from where it was last week. That certainly can take the pressure off global inflation. That certainly can give investors confidence. It's obviously too early to say we're out of the woods. I don't think Putin's going to go down without a fight. But the news is, is good, and I think that could provide a tailwind for stocks going forward here. I'll just say that uh, I do see TTF natural gas down almost 8% just today, and yep, UK yep. natural gas down 6.5% just today. So yeah, one month low, and when we're going lower here on yeah, those exactly. gas prices. Exactly. And hey, how about the bond yields, uh, David? I mean, you know, if I want to put my money in a 10-year bond, I'm getting 3.3%. That's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's actually a kind of a return. <laughs> well, it is and it isn't. Certainly, it's a lot better return than at the start of the year. It's been one of the worst years on in, uh, in history for, for for bond investors. But you know, the fact of the matter is, with the headline inflation last month was eight point one percent year over year, three point three percent is kind of something to sneeze at. Okay. And of course, <laughs> and of course, when you look at history, three point three percent is not that great. You know, you've got the the uh, earnings yield on the S and P five hundred 
at about 17, which is going to give you, what, 5.5%? So I'll take 5.5% over 3.3%. I think in, most retirees that I work with, they can't live on 3.3% yep. for the next 10 years. Yeah, but you're happy to get any kind of return, especially relative to other bonds. Um, but do you think we're going to see the 10-year yield go up, or was 3.5% the peak? <laughs> it's harder to call the bond market than it is the stock market. You know, yeah. it all really depends on inflation. If inflation does get out of control, if the geopolitical developments worsen, um, you're going to see uh, bond investors running for the hills. Bond investors hate inflation. If, on the other hand, recession concerns come back, although the equity market hates recession, bond investors love it because that brings down the inflation. So we're going to have to see. At this point, I still think it's a good deal for investors to uh, to be in stock relative to 3.3% on the 10-year. I, I hate inflation, too. Yeah, who doesn't? Well, I hate it more than you do. Why? Well, you say you're fine with a 2% target. Oh, yeah. That's no, nothing. I that's like nothing. a 0% oh, target. Please, that's not realistic. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at Peacock Private Wealth Management. He got his undergrad at Dartmouth way back in the day, and I'm dating Mr. Dietz uh, and his law degree from University of Chicago. That's not bad. That's a nice combo. Yeah, for that's sure. A nice combo. Now, folks and our listeners, I am holding a wad of cash in my hand because that's what I do. I'm As a usual. Wall Street guy. That's, that's what, what we Paul do. always does. We yeah. came up, we had wads of cash, but I am increasingly the exception to that rule because everything's going digital now on the payment side. And I have to admit, over the pandemic, I'm doing a lot more stuff uh, financially, uh, digitally, you know, so it's- Because uh, nobody wanted to touch your dirty cash. Exactly. I'll take it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Jeff Sloan, he's at the point of all this. He's the CEO of Global Payments. Global Payments is a New York Stock Exchange traded company. GPN is a symbol you type into your Bloomberg professional terminal. Kind of like a market cap of $38 billion. I mean, these guys aren't small. They're based down in Atlanta, Georgia, 25,000 employees. Jeff, thanks so much for being on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Talk to us about your business, Global Payments, over the last two and a half years of this pandemic, how has your business evolved? Well, I think you touched on it with what you said with your dirty cash. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Example, the, the first trend coming out of the pandemic is really uh, increased digitization. So for many decades here in the United States and globally, people have moved away from cash and check toward digital, but the pandemic really brought that forward yep. by three to five years. Great example of this is in our business, we do a lot of real estate payments. So it used to be you'd write out a check to your landlord for the rent, you'd walk down to the office or mail it. If something was broken, you'd fill out a form. In the pandemic, no one had touch a pen, a pencil, right. a check. So what you do now is you go in your phone, you click pay with your thumb in your face, you pay the account you know, from your bank account, and if something is broken or you wanna pull up your car, you type in the valet thing and they pull your car around the front. No one touches paper anymore. It's a great example of what we've seen. So. Um I've been, since I moved back to the U.S., missing the ability that I had in Germany to do that because it's much easier. They're used to making payments um, digitally. Uh, how do you work with this market? And I know you're active in those markets as well in terms of avoiding fraud, because if you use Venmo or Zelle or crypto, um, it's impossible to reverse those those payments. That's a great question. So um, uh, listen, we're a technology company. We have 6,000 people doing nothing but building software all day. And actually most of the major banks in North America and Western Europe use our fraud prevention screens. So we're constantly scanning 
um, these transactions to make sure they're good. We're looking for anomalies and kicking them out. But beyond that, if you step back, every country is really different. The U.S. is primarily a credit and debit card, but increasingly kind of credit in the current environment. And there are very active fraud protections, both as a regulatory and also as a legal matter for use of those cards. So not only are we scanning um, for those anomalies, um, but the banking regulators, the legislators, they're doing all the same thing. And I would say by and large, consumers are protected um, in those markets from fraud. It, the easiest uh, though ways to transfer money are also fairly expensive. I mean, PayPal, for example, um, takes a pretty big cut. How do you keep costs down? So the United States, interestingly, uh, the Federal Reserve came out last week uh, with a movement toward what's called FedNow, or real-time payments, account-to-account transfers, which we saw in Europe, as you described, a number of years ago. Um, I think if you have a Federal Reserve um, and a regulatory-sponsored intervention in the markets where you can provide for faster, more reliable payments in a way that's auditable, um, that avoids the type of fraud that you're referencing, that's nothing but good news for uh, merchants, for consumers, and really for global payments. We're in the business of moving money digitally. If you want your money faster now, I actually have to borrow to provide that to you. I'm not gonna have to do that uh, in mm -hmm. the brave new world. We hear a lot more, or a lot more, most recently about buy now, pay later. What does that mean to you, buy now, pay later, and how does that impact your business? So buy now, pay later, or what I like to call is layaway. Yes, that's what I grew up lending. with, layaway. Uh, and I'm, I'm uh, obviously uh, revealing my age yes. right, by saying, because I'm obviously not a Gen Zer, by saying Back in the day, things, right? you go to service merchandise, you say, I want this bicycle, and you put $100 a month or whatever until you get it. But of course, this is you get the thing first. So it's more like a credit card, really, isn't it? It's debt. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and what um, I think people are worried about here is what we call debt stacking, yeah. which is taking out multiple BNPL applications and no one knows that you have a big pile of debt over here doing something else. But to answer your question, um, really it's not any different than installment lending. Okay. So what we're doing is doing it on a very responsible basis, meaning we don't balance sheet. That's not our decision. That's a decision that traditional financial institutions make from an underwriting uh, and know your customer point of view. And we do it through the regulated banking system. So we're working with a number of financial institutions, NetWest, for example, in the United Kingdom, as well as Barclays, as well as a number of retailers, where it's an adjunct to your bank card lending. So those banks know you because you have an account there. They know your credit profile. They know what you have outstanding. Um, I would say the BNPL guys have done a really good job in technology in bringing innovation to the point of sale. So you go on a website, it's pinging you. Do you want to buy this? I'll give you 5% off. Um, pinging you now while you're shopping, pinging you when you're checking out, pinging you after. We brought that kind of technology to traditional regulated institutions, which is much safer for everybody. How, what does the competition look like? Because as Paul said, you're a huge business, but a lot of businesses and payments are huge. This is kind of one of the most popular uh, Wall Street darlings, I guess, really globally. So who are you going up against? Well, it really varies by market, and our business has always been highly competitive. I don't expect that to change. So we're a technology company. We simply build better software in more markets and do a better job selling it. That's but you have to build better software than Klarna, than Adyen, than um, a firm, et cetera, right? Uh, that, that's exactly right. How do you how do you get an edge on those guys? Sure. So I think one of the things that we're really good at is listening to the market, listening to what we're hearing uh, from our customers and where they're going. Let me give you a great example. So pre-pandemic, we do a lot of quick service restaurant, um, uh, point mm -hmm. of sale devices, as well as online. So 
Pre-pandemic, we did 20 million remote orders in the United States in 19, which means you buy your Burger King hamburger on your phone, pay with your face, it gets delivered through Uber Eats. Last year, we did 300 million of those. Wow. Same thing's true in <laughs> Teladoc. So what we've been able to do is really identify trends like remote delivery and bridging the physical as well as the virtual uh, world. And we compete by way of vertical markets, restaurants, quick service restaurants, retail, healthcare, real estate. So while there are plenty of people competing in things like e-com, the answer to your question is we're very focused on competing in those vertical markets by way of GDP that we think are growing more quickly than the average and are also um, lesser penetrated. Financial news websites, they do. Yes, exactly right. Bloomberg.com. How do you look at crypto? Because Matt loves crypto. I could care less. Well, I think crypto. it's fascinating. I don't think it's fair to say I love it. I, th I think He's, it's fascinating. He was the earliest, one of the earliest guys in media. Uh, you know, I bought crypto. Bitcoin back when it was $600 and promptly lost my password. So I understand the benefits <laughs> and the drawbacks to it. Um, but the the blockchain technology is really the biggest benefit, right? Do you Do you use it? Are you going to? We do. So, uh, for example, if you buy crypto in your PayPal wallet today and you're trading it with somebody else or you're using it, that's actually our technology um, that's allowing you to buy it, settle it, that kind of thing. And we do that globally. That's not just a U.S. Uh, comment. So I think crypto is a series of use cases. Let me tell you first where it doesn't work. So there's almost no acceptance at the point of sale, a physical yep. or virtual point of sale. And the reason for that is there's so much volatility and stable coins in blockchain may be the solution. But for right now, there's so much volatility in Ethereum right. or um, uh, Bitcoin and like, it's very hard to procure that at the point of sale. <laughs> Think about a grocery store, how yes. on earth are those guys gonna take <laughs> exactly. it? But I would say in the case of use cases, um, having loyalty points paid in crypto, having payroll, if you like, paid in crypto, those are good examples of use cases where things work. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff Sloan, he's the CEO of Global Payments, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're going to have more coming up. Got green on the screen where you're off our highs, but again, still a nice uh, start to the week. Let's see what what's going out there with uh, Kriti Gupta. She's our markets correspondent. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Kriti, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, I wanted to take a quick minute and... It's my chart of the day, actually, because I think it's Great. really important. Nice. I know, bringing it back full circle. Um, but it is European. Matt, close your ears. Um, this is significant because we're looking at a chart, 1952, G hashtag BTV, 1952, when you guys get to your terminal um, at your desks. What's important to note, and I'm going to describe it, you're looking at German and French power prices over the last two years. Mm. Basically, they go straight up into 2021 come back down just a little bit. And then this massive parabolic move into, well, right now, really. Yep. They've come back down from their August peak just a touch, but they are still at historically high levels. This is something we've talked about a lot when it comes to the European energy crisis. Wait, 1952? 1952. They've come down tremendously. Tremendously, but historically, they are still extremely high. And here's why this is important. Okay. This has everything to do with what you're seeing in gas prices. And ordinarily, for Americans, we would think that, well, electricity has nothing to do with natural gas. That doesn't really make sense. But in Europe, the grid works so that all the renewable energy sources, um, the gas prices uh, or gas-driven uh, power plants. All prices go from the highest price. Right. Yeah. And gas power plants have the highest price, so they drive the market. And it all feeds into this one grid, which is um, why gas prices are affecting power prices. Um, what's significant here is the ripple effects. Uh, over the weekend, I read these stories that now to deal with this, the Eiffel Tower is going to close their lights off earlier. Uh, really? Yeah. Aww. So the glittering okay. spectacle will right, not be that long. Fart. 
Yeah. Uh, London Underground has been dealing with some really severe delays. Uh, then they don't have any... Uh, they go on strike every couple weeks anyway, so... True, but, but severe delays based on power crunches specifically. Really? Basically, not, there's no power people. to okay. run the actual... Train. Uh, train, which okay. I, which is which is pretty extreme. The tube. Um, so those were the two that I thought were really interesting examples of people of, of countries I should say that are actively dealing with this, and there might. You're be seeing more. that also in I mean in a local in a local way across Germany. So you'll have towns like Hanover yeah. that previously you know were doing just half of their lights at night. Now they're just no more lights. At, Berlin yeah. forever has not turned on the street lights at night just because right? yeah because I didn't know that it's a super lefty town and they want to save ah. electricity and they're also mega mega poor that's the thing about Berlin the mayor once said we're sexy but poor you know <laughs> all right that was, that was okay. their tagline but yeah you see it all, all all over the place like uh you know the the town swimming pool will only be operating six hours a day instead of because ah. they want to save on power well, so they're already they're starting to ration yeah, yeah. All right, good stuff. Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg Markets correspondent. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, let's bring in Jess Menton. She covers equities for Bloomberg News. And Jess, you've got a, a story out talking about corporate America. Is corporate America seeing peak inflation? And, and what do they look at to kind of determine that? What do you got? So the big thing is looking at, and this is data I pulled from Bloomberg Intelligence. So sure. I was talking to Boom. Right. <laughs> so taking a look at, there's some positive signs that have been emerging. So I was talking to uh, Jillian Wolf over there, as well as Wendy Song. And so they were saying that in the second quarter, the S&P 500's free cash flow fell again for the second straight quarter on a rolling four-quarter basis. But when it came to capital deployment, it's actually surging. And that suggests to them that companies don't expect that rising costs are actually going to continue to last. And also, they're taking a look, obviously, at this inflation distress and how that's been picking away at the different cash flows. But they don't see that necessarily being a detrimental thing because they're still seeing balance sheet cash still above those pre-pandemic levels. So that could be a positive sign, obviously, ahead of the CPI data that we're going to get tomorrow. But ahead of that, we did just get a few minutes ago an update from the New York's Fed consumer expectations when it comes to inflation projections. So on the longer term horizon, medium term and short term. Again, those expectations came down for the month of August, continuing those declines that we did see in July. So that could be an optimistic sign ahead of that CPI data that we're going to get tomorrow. All right. What are we expecting tomorrow? And what does uh, a beat or a miss mean for the Federal Reserve? Well, that's the crucial thing, right? Because even a slower inflation print seems unlikely that it's going to end up swaying the Federal Reserve. And that was something that was echoed with the They analysts. love the PCE. Reportedly, they right. prefer the PCE exactly. anyway. Exactly, that's sort of their... And tomorrow's CPI. Right, yeah. so when it comes to, and especially looking at the core numbers that's going to strip out volatile components if we're looking at food and energy, it's projected to be 6.1% on a year-over-year basis, but then remain unchanged at three-tenths of a percent when you're looking month-over-month. Month. So I feel like that is really the core number when you're looking at those month-over-month month differences. But then if obviously if you're going to look more on an annual basis, it's projected to rise about 8% in August from a year earlier versus about 8.5% in July. But again, looking at those month-over-month month numbers are usually the key when I'm talking to strategists. Interesting. I mean, again, we've got a nice move in the market here. Past couple of days, you just wonder kind of where are we here? Maybe this market just really needs to, to, to get a sense of where this Federal Reserve is not necessarily going to go with their next their meeting Wednesday, but maybe some of the language, the body language about do we wait, see how this stuff plays out, or do we just continue to signal that we're in a rising rate mode. And that big meeting obviously happening next week. It begins on Tuesday, but we'll get the decision on Wednesday and obviously hear from 
Chairman Powell about a half hour after that. But this week is a blackout period for the Fed. So last week was the last sort of phase of parade of Fed speakers that we were going to hear. And clearly a lot of them still sticking with that hawkish stance. But what was interesting about last week, it didn't necessarily, when you were hearing from them, they didn't change their hawkish tone. But we did see a bit, obviously, of a rebound with U.S. stocks snapping three consecutive weeks of declines. But looking more ahead, it's interesting because more technically speaking, we're kind of where we were if you looked a month ago when we were going to get those New York Fed inflation expectations right ahead of the CPI numbers. And now we've, uh, looking at the S&P 500, crossed back above the 50-day moving average, the 100-day moving average, but still below the 200-day moving average, which is about 42.72. So that's really key right now. All right. Good stuff. We appreciate it. Jess Menton, equities reporter for Bloomberg News, Texas A&M. How did they do this weekend? You know, <laughs> pretty pretty good, as good as one could expect. But Are I know you that, an Aggie? I am an Aggie. Oh, okay. For sure. <laughs> but a lot of people were obviously focusing on what was happening at uh, the University of Texas, which yes. they did not beat <laughs> no. Alabama. They came close, but I feel like that was kind of the big key, the fact that they did not win. So that was helpful right. for us. Good. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We have Shanali Basak uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio because it's Monday and we always want to kick off the week getting a sense of what's going on on Wall Street and she is our expert there. I got to start, Shanali, with the Goldman news about cutting some people. I guess it's just part of their, uh, you know, as Matt was just saying, kind of their annual culling of, of, of people. But it seems like it was just 15 minutes ago when every story coming out of Wall Street was how much more do we have to pay these kids to take a job on Wall Street. And now we're turning around and laying them off. Only the worst ones though, right? Yeah, and this year went by fast because that conversation ended last year, right? When you turn into this year, it's a much tougher economic environment. And you have to say, I I have to say it, you know, if if you're making it to 5%, of headcount reductions, that's what's typical. If it's less than that, which is what we expect, then it's not so bad for a year that is facing a significant downturn. Now it's still painful because these banks have hired massively last year and the year before, and they have not seen these types of cuts for two years. So this is a return of a strategic review that hasn't really happened in the last couple of years that will be felt again now. All right. So uh, I I thought it was interesting when I heard you're going to go to Salt. That is the Mooch's conference, right? Yes, yes, it is. Um, and that's in New York, right? It is in New York. It's at the Javits Center, but they also have some around the world, in the Middle East, and uh, in Europe. And you know, I think you guys were talking about it—the idea that they sold 30% of Skybridge to. That's FTX. where I was going to go. So, okay, Anthony Scaramucci, who was who worked for President Trump for like 11 days. Yeah. Speaking of 15 minutes, like a cup yeah. of coffee, right? Um, he has a pretty successful conference business yeah uh what else what else does salt do and why does sam bankman freed um the child billionaire who um owns ftx why does he want a piece of the movie he's a millennial billionaire but you know (laughs) he's like 30 he's like 30 years old Uh, obviously how old are you matt he's a total genius and he did really well 
um, on, at Jane Street, to right? To your point, what does Skybridge do? They in, yeah. they've traditionally invested in a lot of hedge funds, a hedge fund funds business alternatives, but they've also recently pivoted very strongly into crypto. So about eight hundred million dollars of their two point five billion dollars at the end of June were in digital assets or digital asset linked companies, including FTX. Are you are you going to this conference? I am. Now, I'm interviewing Bridgewater's Greg Jensen. I'm interviewing Greg Jensen in the three p.m. hour today. You can find it oh, on the terminal. Cool. Yeah. So Greg Jensen, he's from Bridgewater. Bridgewater, awesome. World's largest hedge fund. Yeah. And so you do still have a lot of traditional investors there. And when I talked last week to Anthony Scaramucci about this FTX investment, what he told me was two things. He's going to be 60 in 2024, in January of 2024. The Mooch? The Mooch is going to be 60. Aging well. Yeah. He looks good. <laughs> yeah. And he told me that he doesn't want to be a Shakespearean figure looming over the firm. He uh. wants to think about the next 10 years of Skybridge, the next generation, which includes his deputy, John Darcy, as well as, you know, folks like FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried that can help Skybridge get more into crypto. And conversely, this is important, FTX get more into, into traditional finance. So those worlds are merging and they're certainly going to merge at salt today. Greg Jensen's only 48. I know. I know. He's a kid. They are. Born in 1974, went to Dartmouth. Yep. Good stuff. Loves poker. Uh, oh, really? Apparently. Well, I guess he likes to take risk, you know. And, and, and read uh, 600 pages a weekend from what I I'll heard. I'll bet USBF is a good poker player, too. You know, I'm going to ask them about that today. I want to get in on this game. Y'all want to join? Oh, there's you, a poker game of the players, I right? I think we should have it here at Bloomberg. Okay. Yeah. A risk there is management also, exercise. Uh, yeah, I can get you into a really, a really cool poker game. Because I know um, our friend Mindy Grossman, she has... A poker game that's like a it's a women centric I don't know if it's women only. women who play poker these days it's a huge thing in finance uh-huh totally yeah, it's a big deal um, yeah. I think Carolyn Hyde uh, plays as well she does yeah. she indeed does we all well, got it all together here all right very cool looking forward to that what else is going on uh, when I when I saw you coming into work this morning you were listening to an ethereum podcast she was listening to a crypto, <laughs> crypto podcast no, but you had you made some interesting points about it. I mean, um, I was like, man, crypto, what a joke. <laughs> and, and you were like, no, there's real returns here. There are. And remember, over the last 10 years, there have been significant returns, even in the crypto winter that you see now. But this is a moment of truth for Ethereum. Remember, if Bitcoin was the original, Ethereum is supposed to be the newer age, eco-friendly younger brother, I it's guess. It's about to get really eco-friendly, right? Because they're going to reduce the energy needed um, to verify transactions by 99%. They're going to go to yes. proof of stake from proof of work. Now, as people put up more uh, more of their own Ethereum to stake, it, because that's how they are validating new nodes, as people put up more money to stake, is this an inflationary or deflationary force for Ethereum, which does not act as Bitcoin does, where Bitcoin has a fixed supply. Ethereum is not fixed. So by staking more assets, are you then able to control kind of that inflationary force that's embedded mm -hmm. within Ethereum? I think it's so fun that this kind of new age of technologists are really thinking about this in macro terms and it's a collision of the worlds whether it works out or not on Thursday we will see the Ethereum's blockchain's much anticipated software upgrade the so-called merge the is merge. expected to take place around all, uh, Thursday September 15th Sarah Masuli from Bloomberg she sent some stuff out that saved my bacon now I kind of have a produces the crypto show she, I mean this explains for. everything for me so thank you Sarah Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.